When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering. So please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, I have 10 questions today, just like I always do. If any of you are new here, welcome. Um, also, it really would be helpful if you could share this podcast with people that you think could it could benefit and leave some positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or to Spotify do reviews. I don't even know. Um, but that really, really helps because um, I'm hoping since a lot of these podcasts on YouTube are not monetizable, some are. And they're getting better, but a lot of them are not. Um, I'm hoping to be able to get some some advertisement, some sponsorship. And so I have to get the numbers up a little bit. So please share. That's really, really helpful. Now, if you're new, I find the, or I get the questions from the Opinions That Don't Matter podcast channel. So you can just get on YouTube and look up Opinions That Don't Matter. And that is where Sean and I house both of our podcasts. And in the community tab on Mondays, I ask you for your questions. And that is where I pull them. And then I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups or the most likes, whatever you want to call it. And that's how I pick them. So without further ado, let's get into this week's questions. They're really great. Um, I'm doing an extra one this week to try to catch up, not catch up, but get ahead so that I don't have to record a podcast like on Christmas because um, your girl needs a vacation just like everybody else needs a vacation. But I know that all of you count on these things weekly. So I'm trying to film an extra one. Um, and so this week's actually I got to get into the ones that don't have maybe the most likes but are still up there. And so hopefully for some of you who've been trying to get your question seen and and answered. Hopefully this allows you to do that. Now, the first question is, hello, Katie, I've had such a horrible week despite my efforts to bring my mood up. I'm so sorry. It's been a rough year, you guys. And getting myself feeling happy. I've just been so tired every day, drained, even with sleep. I've been unable to get myself motivated or focused on anything. And I've been so depressed and emotionally drained. Things have been tough, I'd say, staying home a lot because I was so scared of people being near me because of COVID-19. I feel ya. Then it just got worse. Now I don't go out because of my anxiety. Just having someone stand near me or a group of people walk past gets my anxiety going. I do worry about the long-term effects of stuff like, like what's happening and people feeling like that. I get shakes and shortness of breath outside. And through... 
Um, and through the days I've been giving up on myself. I do things that are important and I hate life, Katie, but you give me the courage to share how things have been for me. Oh, I'm glad. It's nice. It helps to just vent, right? It says, please help. Thanks for all your videos. You are great. You're great too. It, it It's rough. And I, I really want to start off with this question because I think a lot of us are feeling this way where, you know, a couple of months, it's, it's like back in March, I think we all kind of hoped that this would just be like a short lived, uh, not quarantine, but just, I don't know what else to call it, but, you know, stay home order is what we called it in the States. I think a lot of us had hoped it'd just be a few weeks and then we'd be back up and at them in just like the regular days. However, as this, you know, persists and it's, we're going on, oh God, cause it's December here. So we're going on nine months of this. It's been, it's, it's really rough and it starts to take its toll. And so what I would encourage all of us to do is to first acknowledge that we all feel like shit and it's okay. It's okay to feel anxious. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel mad. It's okay to need to grieve. It's okay to have all those things going on. The sooner we allow ourselves to feel our emotions, honestly, the sooner they'll pass. So it's kind of, it, it feels, uh, it, it feels uncomfortable but the discomfort will be shorter lived if we allow ourselves to feel it. Does that make sense? So it's like if we let ourselves feel angry for a day because life is crazy and I hate it and I can't see my friends and it's really frustrating and I really miss traveling and you know all the things. We can grieve, we can be angry, we can and rage, whatever you want to do, cry, whatever. You'll find that after a short period of time, th- those things go away. Like I can only cry even in my therapy sessions because I'm a total crier in therapy. I can only cry for so many sessions and I only have so much to kind of get out. Like I, I have do verbal diarrhea at therapy where I just like, blah, 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 like tell her everything all at once. And then she like sorts it and we work through it. And that's how my therapy sessions kind of go. There's only so much of that I can do until I really don't have new things to share. I don't really feel as intensely as I did initially. And I will put this out there. If you do that, if you let yourself feel something and it only pulls you in deeper and makes you feel worse and you can't get out and every day you feel terrible, that's a mental illness. And that means that you should see a professional and get some help, whether that be, you know, through talk therapy, whether that's, you know, any type of therapy, CBT, DBT, whatever, or maybe medication based if it's depression or anxiety, you know, antidepressants or SSRIs, SNRIs can help. There are a lot of things we can do if we find ourselves being pulled in that direction. However, for most of us, when we are just having like a down mood, it's okay to feel it and it will actually go away more quickly than if we ignore it. Because if we ignore it, then we kind of feel it all the time. It's always there, just hanging out, making our days a little bit worse, making it harder for us to do the things we want to do. And so, I mentioned that because the person who asked this question is saying like, you know, I've been so depressed and then my anxiety um, has gotten it so bad that I don't want to leave the house. And is if we are able to just let ourselves feel the feelings and we think that we, you know, that's that will get it out of our system, that will make us feel better. And that will allow us, you know, to to let it out so that we don't let that uh, emotion or overwhelming experience like last and bother us forever and ever. We can like kind of vent it a little at a time. But again, like I said, if we find it to be overwhelming, it's every day, all day, no matter if we let ourselves feel it or not, it still persists. Reach out to a professional, see someone because it can get better. And so my advice for this person specifically, I just wanted to address that because I think a lot of times when we feel uncomfortable, we try to stuff it down and not feel it. And then that actually just makes it last longer, makes us feel worse for it, you know, our days worse and potentially make it la- feel worse for like months and months and months. 
when maybe we would have only felt bad for a few days. And so let yourself do that. See what that, you know, what that does. And then moving on. So getting shakes and shortness of breath when you're outside. When it comes to anxiety, the truth is we have to slowly prove to ourselves that it's not as scary as we thought it was. Like you've gone out and even though you've been around people or people are standing near to, near you or something, you've had to go out into the world at one point or another, you didn't catch COVID-19. So clearly the precautions that you're taking, like washing your hands, not touching your face, staying at, at you know, a, di- a distance of six feet or more from people, wearing your masks or maybe a face shield, whatever you're comfortable, you know, all of that stuff. If you're doing all the things you're supposed to do, you haven't caught it. So therefore, we can tell our anxiety, you know, go fuck yourself. This isn't true. This isn't what's happening. I'm okay. I did the things. And there's actually, there is a threat out there and I need to take precautions, but it's not as threatening as your body is allowing you to feel like that uh, fight, flight, freeze that you're going into is just making you feel worse and it's preventing you from getting outside. And so a couple of things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to daily shake it out. I talked about this on my main channel. I think I probably talked about it here, but we know those full body shakes. Like I'm talking, I'm a dog out of the bath. I shake from my my nose to my tail, right? That full body shake. If I can shake every part of my body, starting with my head and moving down my shoulders, my arms and my stomach, my body, right? We move all the way down. That gets that anxious energy that's kind of trapped in our system, right? Because we don't have any action to really take to to get it out, like fight and flight, we how are we going to fight or run away from a virus? We really can't, right? It's invisible. We're not really sure where it's going to be. We're doing the things we can, but you know, so it can feel trapped and we don't get to finish that stress response. We don't get to complete it so that we feel uh, calmed down. Therefore, we have to like do that on our own. We have to finish the stress response and do that, like make a, make a point of doing that versus it happen, happening naturally. So doing that full body shake each and every day. If you find your heart racing, you find your your mind racing with these worry thoughts, or you find your palms getting sweaty, if we feel any of those symptoms, shake it out again. You can shake more than once a day, but what that does is just regulates our nervous system and calms us down. So anything that's calming regulates our nervous system, FYI. So we want to do that each and every day. I want you to shake it out. Okay, do that. Then the second thing I want you to do is to find a way to get true connection in a safe manner. Meaning if uh, like Sean and I've seen a couple friends, like maybe six people total, three couples that we've seen over the course of this year, which we've been a little bit more restrictive than most, I think just because we can. And I feel like if we can do that, all of the people who you know, that's something that I can do for all of the people who can't do that, if that makes sense, like all of our frontline workers, all of our uh, first responders, healthcare workers, delivery men, all of that. If they can't do it, I can do it. So I should do that for them. And so I've made the choice to do that. However, we still have seen some of our, our friends that we are close with by, you know, taking 14 days where we all d- agree to quarantine, some getting tested, making sure they're not. And then we get together for like an evening, make some time for Zooms, for FaceTimes, for in-person hangouts that can be safe so that you get that true connection. Because Connection is also soothing to our system and probably part of the reason why you're feeling so anxious and depressed. And we really, we all need that time. We need to to feel seen and heard by people who really love us, who we know well. So make that time and that will help as well. And I have full videos. So if you want to watch my, I think if you just look up Katie Morton COVID anxiety, that video will come up. And then I have one about loneliness. I think it's like, I feel so alone. 
look that one up. Those are both really helpful uh, videos because they're kind of COVID specific and ways for us to survive this this pandemic. Because I don't even like saying this year because here we are at the end of 2020. So many people have been joking about like, you know, 2020 is just a wash. Let's wait till 2021. But, you know, January 1st, when that happens, that doesn't mean that this is over necessarily. And not to be doom and gloom, but I'm just saying we have to find ways to cope because I don't think this is ending like today. So, or, you know, December 31st, we need to have some things that we can do to help ourselves feel better. And I know some people say like, well, getting together, you know, there's too much risk. Not if we, you know, do the things I'm talking about, getting tested, uh, making sure that we're quarantining for, a, uh, you know, 14 days or a certain period of time after, you know, if you get tested, it's negative, wait a few more days, get tested again, it's negative. That's what a lot of my friends are doing is the double getting two in a row and then not seeing anybody else and then getting together with a few people who've done the same thing. There are some safe ways to get connection because I do worry, and I'll move on after this, you guys, because I know I'm rambling a lot, but like, I do worry about the long-term mental health effects of this year. And if you're young, you know, if you're not in the high-risk group, for some of my patients, it's like, you have to weigh the costs versus the benefit, right? If we struggle with addiction and we struggle with suicidal thoughts or anything, we struggle with mental health issues and being on our own, let's say we live alone and being on our own makes it worse so much so that maybe we could attempt to take our own life or we could have a relapse or maybe we've already had a relapse and we're trying to fight back again. It might behoove you to find a way to to spend time, you know, frequently with people who are supportive and loving because that in and of itself is actually more healthy for you. Than this whole like, you know, making sure we're healthy and distance from other people. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like you have to weigh what's best for you. And yes, I know people are all uh, get angry about the COVID things on both sides from whether they are like, this is too much and, you know, my business is failing and I don't believe in it or whatever to, you know, we need to take uh, at least six feet, wear your mask. Like you shouldn't be leaving your house. Like I know there's extremes, but for some of us, the cost is too great for us to be isolated the mental health ramifications are actually more dangerous than the potential of us catching COVID-19. And we each personally have to do, do things to help save our own lives. And if you're having a tough time, find a way to safely and healthfully engage with other people who help you feel seen, heard, and understood because that's so important right now. And yeah, I mean, any mental health professional, if you ask them right now, will tell you that suicide rates are up, depression rates are up, anxiety rates are up, and overall people reaching out for help are up. Almost, I want to say all, but I can't say all because I don't think I've reached out to every one of my colleagues, but we've gotten on Zoom calls periodically throughout this time and everyone's fully booked. And so sometimes that means that if you call someone, they might not be able to see you right away. And we've been talking about how how much we worry about the mental health ramifications of this pandemic throughout the world and how we can best, you know, manage it. And so hopefully those are some tips and tools and just thoughts to assist you if you've been having a hard time, because you're not alone. Like I said, the rates are up. People are struggling. I think anybody in the world would agree that this year has been overwhelming and stressful. Even for those of us who don't normally have mental health issues, we've had a tough time. I've cried more this year than normal and I'm a crier and I felt stressed out more than usual this year. And I arguably haven't had to leave my house. So some things like travel, giving talks live, like hasn't happened. So you think I'd be calmer. I'm not. 
And I've made some videos to that effect so that people know they're not alone. And it's not just, you know, even as a, a person who's supposed to quote unquote, have it all together, I still have tough times too. And this year has been really tough. And I just want you to know I'm here for you. I see you, I hear you. And hopefully some of those tips are helpful. Okay, let's get some water here. It is so dry in LA right now, you guys, by the way, our humidity is like 0%. So I've had to put like chapstick on top of chapstick and lotion on top of lotion. And I still like my throat feels dry just talking for like five minutes. <clears throat> okay, question number two says, oh, this, you guys, oh, I love your questions always like roll from one to the other so nicely. It says, how do you tell the difference between feelings of loneliness being alone and being introverted or a quote unquote lone wolf. I really struggle to, t to tell where one starts and the other begins and therefore how much of my aloneness, mental and physical is healthy. Any tips on how to tell? The truth about it is enjoyment. So people who are more, I mean, introverted, no one is a pure introvert and no one is a pure extrovert. I talked about this, like, this is probably years ago, but I did a video. If you wanted to Google or get on YouTube and do Katie Morton introvert or extrovert, it should come up. But I did a video many years ago about this because we talk about people like I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert. And most of us are kind of in this middle uh, chunk. We're not at the extremes. To be an extreme introvert or extrovert is actually really, really rare. It doesn't mean never, but it's very rare. And most of the research says that in a lifetime, we won't meet someone like that, okay? So know that where most of us are kind of in the middle, we just kind of lean towards one way or the other. Like I am almost, I would say almost exactly in the middle, but a little bit on the introverted side because after being extroverted, after engaging with people socially, I have to recharge. I need alone time and I actually crave alone time. Even as a kid, I craved alone time. My mom told, told me that she used to try to punish me um, by like, you have to go to your room, you know, and I couldn't like be outside and play, but I actually preferred to be alone in my room. So then she would make me sit in a corner out in the kitchen and talk with her. And that was punishment. And I just, I still giggled about that today because I'm still that person. Like if, if Sean was like, I need to do something. So can you just go in the office by yourself for like three hours? I'd be like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> so you know, we get to know ourselves. But I just wanted to say that like in that most of us are in that middle range, we just have to figure out what's a good balance for us. So when it comes to being an introvert or a lone wolf, if we're more on that side of things, or we prefer like much to the way that I am, we prefer that time alone, or we need that time alone to each their own amount. That means we enjoy that. However, if we are lonely, the feeling of loneliness means that we aren't enjoying it, and we need more social connection. And that's really how to tell the difference. So if you're alone and you are just like really loving it, ooh, this is so good. Like like they'd say, like a pig in mud, like you just love it. You're rolling in it. You're just having a good time. Then that means that you are more of a lone wolf and you're more introverted. But if you find yourself missing connection with other people, missing conversations, wanting to see someone, really longing for a hug or a real conversation, that means that we're lonely. And I will put in a caveat here that hopefully doesn't complicate it too much. But because of COVID and the fact that I'm doing all of my sessions, if you guys don't know, I have just six patients left in my practice. Um, and I'm honestly trying to whittle down because we're moving to Texas and that can get complicated. So I'm doing some referrals and everything. But as I do those sessions, some of my patients are had social anxiety, right? Or anxiety in one form or another and are loving the fact that we've been at home. Like I remember in like May or June, a few of my patients are like, I'm feeling great. 
I don't even know if I need therapy anymore. And I was like, we can totally take a break, but I just want you to recognize that your triggers aren't here. And now this is the time we actually have to build up your resilience because you don't have any triggers, but they will come back at some point. Right. So we have to recognize, I bring that up because what I, the way it applies to this is if that's why we're enjoying our time alone is because we're avoiding the triggers, like going into work was super stressful. Maybe we didn't like a coworker and that was like a toxic relationship or something we were anxious about, or, you know, there could be a bunch of different things. If that's the reason we're enjoying our alone time and we, we still miss the connection, but we're happy to not have those triggers. I want you just to know that that also means we're lonely because just the avoidance of triggers still wouldn't negate the fact that we would miss connection. Does that make sense? So I just want to throw that out there. So it's like a full, so you can assess because only, you know, you like, I've heard from a few of you recently about how your therapist like doesn't agree with what you think your diagnosis is or doesn't want to hear you or, and that's not a good therapist. The point of therapy is for me to offer up my expertise and help guide you, but then also lean into your experience and your thoughts and your take on what's going on because you know you best. I can place this into treatment plans and give you tools and techniques and work them out. But even then, some of those might not work for you and you're going to have to give feedback. And I just want you all to know that a, a healthy therapeutic relationship is a, is me offer, as your therapist, not me, but your therapist offering uh, advice, insight, tools, techniques, and you letting them know what works and doesn't work and you sharing your experience and your symptoms that you feel and them hearing you and you know, working together to put that together. It shouldn't be like, I'm the expert and I know best because I might understand the diagnostic criteria for depression, let's say, but I don't know how it feels for you. And I, you should be educating me on that while I educate you on what I know. And together, you know, with our powers combined, we can save the world. I'm just kidding. This is, you know, I was pretending to do like, um, Captain Planet. Okay. Um, anyways, so Long story short, the answer to this question is, do you feel better being alone and you love it and you need that time? Or do you miss people, connection, conversation, maybe some physical touch, and you're feeling lonely? That's the difference. And that's how you tease it out. Um, And I know that there can be different. That's why I brought up the anxiety. Like you might feel kind of better now, but that doesn't mean that you still won't miss your real relationships, connection, conversations with people. And so aloneness can be healthy even the most introverted people that we would meet will still, you know, want some social interaction. It just might only be with like one close friend for 30 minutes or an hour each week or something like that. So uh, yeah, I hope that helps and helps you kind of tease it out because only you know, you only you know how you feel. Okay, more water because it's dry here. Question number three says, hi, Katie, I'm just going to get straight to the point here. I love it. I feel like I always have a desire to be the victim. For lack of a better term, I've experienced a quote unquote rush at the thought of it. I feel uncomfortable if I don't have something wrong with me and it's caused a lot of self-hatred. I'll describe my experiences below for context, but it's kind of long. It's not that long. It's okay. You guys we will get through this. When I was 14, I started researching eating disorders by which I mean Googling a lot. And I tried to imitate the behaviors I read about. It was like I wanted an eating disorder. About 10 months after I started, I tried forcing myself to eat normally, which I accomplished in three to four months, which doesn't seem possible without any kind of therapy. It seemed too fast. It's made me question the legitimacy of everything else regarding my mental health. Are my depression and anxiety real or am I just making it all up? 
I self-harmed for a while and I thought it was a uh, reaction to the stress I was feeling at the time, but I feel like I remember feeling a wanting or choosing to start it. So, um, so could that have been the same kind of situation as my eating disorder? There's a lot more I could go on about, but we'd be here all day. This is a great question. And over the years, a lot of you have asked me about like if you're making it up. And the truth is we're not making up anything. But the imitation of behaviors and the fact that you like just stopped doing it and went back to the way it was and then, you know, um, kind of feeling like you self-injured and then, you know, maybe you felt like you wanted or chose to do it. Even the wanting and choosing to engage in what I would call an unhealthy coping skill, like an eating disorder or self-injury, or even you mentioned like depression, anxiety, like even that, even if we're choosing it or if we're quote unquote making it up, something's wrong, right? Because if we want to engage in in such harmful like personally harmful behaviors, there's a reason, like there's something that's up. There's a reason that we're choosing to do that for better, for worse. That's just the truth. And so for instance, things that bubble up to me are that I have had patients who have histrionic personality disorder and I have videos about it. And I even talk about it with regard to Michael Scott in the office. Um, because I think he has it. But some people with histrionic personality disorder will do anything for more attention. And there are other symptoms, and I'm not saying this is you, but I'm just saying that I think of histrionic personality disorder. I think of borderline personality disorder, which um, a lot of my patients over the years, um, if you guys don't know, because I specialize in eating disorders and self-injury work, a lot of the people that I see have borderline. And I've recognized that over the years, a lot of them feel like they just want someone to care for them so much because they feel so abandoned and the we have so many struggles with attachment that we can act out in ways to get people's attention. And people call that like, oh, it's attention-seeking behavior. Sure, but we all need attention. And this void that those of us with BPD have is so painful that we don't find we don't have another way to try to assuage that pain. And so anyway, I'm just bringing that up because those are things I think of when I read this as like, hmm, is it histrionic personality disorder or is it, you know, BPD or what is it? Or is it anxiety is so intense that we don't really know how else to cope. And so we're trying to find other ways to cope, which is super resourceful of you. However, you know, looking up eating disorders and imitating that behavior isn't the best choice, but you could have just been looking for other resources. And so what I would say is that I would, first of all, I just encourage you to see a mental health professional and tell them about this because they're going to be able to ask the questions that like I'm wanting to ask here, which is like going through all of the histrionic personality disorder symptoms and seeing if any of those feel real to you. And then going through borderline personality disorder and seeing if any of those seem to be real to you. Or talking about your anxiety and if that drives this behavior or when it started and have you have there been other people in your life who have done certain things or acted out in this way as well? Is that how you learned it? You know, I have so many questions to figure out where this is coming from. But I think for a lot of us, it's not so much a desire to be the victim. It's more we're needing validation and understanding. And maybe like we feel like we need more reason to feel the way we feel. Like we feel shitty and then we automatically judge ourselves and we're like, well, my life is fine. What the fuck is wrong with me? I don't have any reason to be upset. This is ridiculous, blah, 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 right? So we can do that and like invalidate our experience and talk down and judge how we feel. But instead of 
maybe doing that, you're like, no, I'm going to create another thing because that's an actual problem. And then I can say, that's why I feel so shitty because I have an eating disorder or because I self injure or because I have depression or anxiety, right? So it could be coming from that too, just the the need for validation. And so part of that could be helped in therapy where you get that therapeutic relationship and that validation and that understanding of what's happening. And someone saying to you, I see you, I hear you, and your feelings are valid. You know, you have every right to feel the way you feel. And it's important. And that tells us something, you know, we might need that and be searching for that. And so, yeah, I know that's like a long-winded answer, but just the, it's not that anybody wants or chooses a mental illness. It's that we didn't really feel like we had any other way to do it or any way to deal and with how we're feeling. And so whatever you're trying to get out of it, whatever you feel you get from doing those things, that's kind of where your answer would lie. But I really think seeing a therapist, you know, if you're not already could be really beneficial. And if you are seeing one, I would encourage you to read the question that you sent in to me to them so you can get their insight because they're going to know more. They might have answers to some of the questions that I just, you know, rattled off already. So that could be really helpful too. But no, you're not making it all up. There's a reason that you're doing it. And we just have to figure out what that reason is. Okay, moving on. Question number four says, Hey, Katie, ethical slash therapy related question here. I opened up with my therapist about part of my past sexual abuse, and I told her that I first realized it was actually sexual abuse when recently a friend told me of a similar situation and we both found it disturbing and unacceptable. At the end of my session, my therapist asked me a lot of questions about this specific situation. I mentioned because the situation I described to her is ongoing and a minor is involved. The situation is currently taking place in a different country, and I had already verified with a lawyer that even though it was disgusting and unethical, it was not illegal and there was nothing that we could do. God, I hate that. I hate that when you get answers like that. Ugh. Due to the sense of sensitive topic, however, my therapist was clearly alarmed and told me that she'll have to discuss this further with her supervisor and to consider what um, what I would like to do about this. This conversation stressed me endlessly. I started self-harming as a result. However, what hurts me most is that everything I told my therapist that happened to me when I was a minor didn't elicit any reaction. While she reacted and wanted to further discuss the other person's situation, I understand that I put her in a difficult situation and that she was legally obligated to report this, that is true, but I still feel a little bit betrayed. After all, when sexual abuse happened to me, I was a minor too, and she didn't say anything about it. Why am I so upset about this? I don't want to talk about my sexual abuse with my therapist anymore. I don't even want to mention the topic again. Thanks for your wonderful podcast. Sending you a socially distanced hug. Love it. I welcome those hugs. Um, this is a great question. And just for the legality of it, for all of you to understand, as a therapist, if if one of my patients reports um, being sexually abused as a child, and depending on where you live, right, sometimes there's statute of limitations, meaning let's say you were, you know, raped or assaulted. I think you have five years in different, every state's a little bit different or different countries might have different laws too, but you have a, a certain amount of time. That's what the statute of limitations means. You have a certain amount of time to report it. And if that time has passed, you can no longer file a report. And I don't know why they have that in certain cases. There's no statute of limitations on murder. I do know that. But anyways, when it comes to abuse, there can be a statute of limitations. Okay. So there's that to consider. There's also the fact that you are not a minor anymore. And if you are not a minor, and then you're telling me about something that happened when you were a minor, 
You have to be the one to want to take it to court and report it. I am no longer legally mandated because you're not a minor, you're not a dependent adult or an elder. And those are the things that I'm a mandated reporter for. And again, I'm sure different states and countries have different laws, but I would assume they're all pretty much the same. And so when you're therapist found out that the situation is still occurring and there's a minor that is involved, that minor is a protected class of people that I am reported to, I'm mandated to report. And so she had to do that. And so that's why she had a bunch of questions about it and seemed very concerned is because we're legally mandated. And if she didn't do that and something else happened, she could lose her license and uh, be sued. So it's very scary. Not only do we want to protect minors because no one should be put in that situation. I'm sorry you had to go through that. But we have to report it as quickly as possible. I think we have like 24 hours or 48 hours to report it. And, um, and that's funny. I haven't thought about that in a while. And I think it's I think it's 48 hours, but it might be 24 hours. Anyway, we have to report it. You have a short amount of time. So she needs to get as much information as, from you as possible to protect that that minor that's being affected, as well as to protect herself and her license. And that's that's really why. However, when it comes to your situation, the reason that she probably didn't react in the same way and didn't ask the same questions is because that's not necessary in the, the healing process. Like asking where they live or what the situation was or all these details, it's what she what she's doing is mentally filling out this form. Because if anybody's ever if any of you are uh, professionals who are mandated reporters, you filled out those forms enough to know you need like an address and a phone number and a person and the, the potential name of the victim and how long it's been going on. There's like certain questions you fill out. Da, 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 da. Have they been reported before? Do they have, have an open case file that you know of? All this stuff. They're going to ask you for all this information. And so she's trying to gather that for the current ongoing situation. But when it comes to you and the the processing of your trauma and the healing, that stuff isn't as important. It's more about going at a pace that feels good for you so that she doesn't re-traumatize you or you know, cause any more harm. And so that's why you're probably feeling the difference. So I just wanted to talk about that. Okay, so that's the main thing I wanted to cover when it comes to like your therapist was alarmed and why'd she react this way and ask all those questions, yada, yada, yada. It's because that's what we have to do. Now, the reason why you may be so upset about this is because it can feel invalidating. That child part of yourself that was harmed, right? That, And I know you're like, but I was harmed. And yes, I'm not saying that it wasn't you. I'm just saying the child version of yourself that was harmed is throwing a tantrum and is really hurt by the fact that our, our white knight, our savior, the person that's been the most understanding and has heard about the whole story, our therapist, isn't doing the same thing for us as they're doing for this other child. And we can, in a way, feel like we're not as important or what happened to us wasn't as bad, neither of which are true. The truth about it is that it's because minors are a protected class and you are currently not in that state. And so the truth about this is that, of course, you're hurt. You have every right to feel hurt. But what I really want you to do is I want you to let your therapist know that you feel this way. It's okay to feel upset and to, she probably doesn't even recognize that you're feeling this way or, you know, I, I know she didn't mean to do it. And so I would talk to her about it because your feelings are valid. It's okay to feel that way. Of course, you're upset. When you were a child, no one protected you and someone I'm assuming that your parents trusted or maybe a parent, it's, you know, one of your parents themselves harmed you. That's fucked up. That hurts. It like 
erodes the core of who we are and can make us question our ability to trust people, our, our ability to understand what love is, to, to have a healthy relationship with sex. It can mess up a whole bunch of things. Of course, you're having a tough time with this. Of course, you're hurt. Of course, you feel like shit and you're angry maybe because you wanted someone to come and help you and save you and take you out of that bad situation and no one did. And now you see, you know, your person who's helping you now, who's like trying to pull you from it now, helping someone else and that can feel really icky and I get it and that's okay. But I would really talk to her about it. She probably has no idea and it could be really validating for you to hear her say, you know, that wasn't my intention. I am so sorry. Your pain is just as valid as anyone else's because it is. What happened to you is terrible. And if I could have reported it, I would. And that's the truth. I can't tell you how many times because I only see adults mainly. I've seen just a few teenagers over the years. Um, But I mainly see adults in my practice. And when they tell me stuff like this, I'm like, God, I wish I could report it. You know, but they as the patient are the only one that can like, if there's, you know, if they still can, they can file a, a suit of some sort and take them to court and, you know press charges or whatever, right? So of course you feel betrayed. It's because the person who's there to support you and help you is helping someone else. And that feels horrible because you still feel like that child and you need that help. And a lot of what we have to heal when it comes to, you know, childhood abuse is that inner child work where we have to get in touch with that child of ourselves who may be throwing a tantrum, who may be really hurt and scared. And we have to kind of coax him or her out so that we can, you know, give her the length, the, give him or her the soothing, comforting words that we needed to hear, you know, like, it's going to be okay, I'll get you out of here. You know, this isn't your fault, whatever we needed to hear, we have to kind of do that work as an adult. And so if you're, even if you aren't doing that work yet, that child of you is very active, very loud, very hurt, very pained, and doing like going through this really it's like a trigger, like poked all the buttons. And and that's why it feels icky because that child of you is like, are you kidding me? What? No one came to save me. No one did shit about this. And now I'm stuck. You know, it can feel really icky and bad. And so you have every right. I want you to let your therapist know because there needs to be some healing that happens here because this this tells us something, right? It, it tells us how sensitive you are. It tells us what you may be needing from your therapist and from yourself to do some of that inner child work and to heal that wound. Um, yeah, all the good things. It, it can, it's actually really helpful that we know this. There's nothing wrong with you and how you feel. You have every right to feel the way you feel, but just express it to your therapist so they can help you work through it. Okay. Okay. Question number five says, Hey Katie, is it possible to choose to be emotionally neglected? A few years ago, I noticed that I grew way too attached to my singing teacher for it to be considered normal. It led me to believe that I have some attachment issues caused by my mother. I thought I was emotionally neglected since I felt like my singing teacher was the first one to really hear me. Also, I'm not very close to my mother emotionally, but then it doesn't fit because back when I was bullied in school, she did try to support me and comfort me when I was crying. I just felt like she always said the wrong thing and never really helped, which led to me not talking to her about my problems with any, uh, my problems with her anymore even though I really needed that mother figure in my life. That's the key sentence. We're going to come back to that. I just felt like she couldn't take my problems. Also, I remember her almost never taking my side when I had issues with my little brother. So I had to be the quote unquote older one and just ignore my own feelings. I also remember her telling me to not be like that when I was mad for no obvious reason and she didn't like it. 
but she always tried her best to listen and understand when I was sad. So I just don't get what went wrong and why I resent her so much. Thanks for all you're doing. I really love your podcast. Lots of love from Germany. Ooh, if I knew a phrase in German, I would say it right now. But thank you for your question. This got a lot of likes. I think this is something that a lot of us have struggled with. And the short answer is you did not choose to be emotionally neglected. You were emotionally neglected. Just because your mom tried doesn't mean she gave you what you needed. That's the problem in the struggle we have with emotional neglect because those our parents or caregivers, it looks good on paper, right? My mom fed me, put clothes on my back, took me to school, even tried to help me when I was bullied. But here's the important thing that I want you to hear because you wrote it to me and maybe you didn't even realize that you said it. it says, um... Because back when I was bullied in school, she did try to support me and comfort me, comfort me when I was crying. I just felt like she always said the wrong thing and never really helped. You need to hear that. She always said the wrong thing. She never really helped. Therefore, even though she was attempting to be there for you emotionally, maybe because of her own limitations or her own issues, she wasn't there for you in the way you needed. And that's the problem. That's the emotional neglect. And so many of my patients and viewers and people in our community have talked about how their mother or father did everything, quote unquote, right. You know, they tried to do all these things the way they're supposed to. And so they, it makes it harder for us to acknowledge and admit that it wasn't enough and that wasn't what I needed, right? Like, I don't just need my mom to to tell me how big of jerks the bullies are. And from, you know, cause a lot of parents will do this where they kind of do the tough love thing where they say, you know, yeah, those bullies are jerks and, and they don't deserve anything. And next time you just tell them where to shove it and you punch them in the face. I don't even care. You protect yourself, blah, blah, blah. Okay. That might work for some of us. That might be validating for some children. However, for most children, what they need to hear is I am so sorry you're hurt. If you want, I can you know go to school and talk. I can do whatever you need me to do. I don't want to make anything more troubling for you. Just know that I hear you, and this is really terrible. And I'm so sorry. I'm sorry this is happening. And you know I love you. We just need that kind of affirmation, confirmation, validation, and just support. And some of us just need to be held while we cry. You know, like I used to love when my grandma would like rub my back and play with my hair while I was upset. That was like super soothing to me. And um, so you know, there are things like that, that we are needing. And just because our parent tries, doesn't mean that they give us what they want. It sounds like your mom tried, but did the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, and even would uh, never take your side. So you always felt defend, I would feel like I had to defend myself if I was going to talk to her, which doesn't really open it up for that emotional support that we are needing. And so of course, you're going to become really attached to your singing teacher, like you said, for example, or other women in your life that you think could fill that role that your mother never could. And it again, emotional neglect doesn't have to be malicious. Most of the time, I would say like, you know, 60 to 70% of the time, the emotional neglect isn't something that a parent's even aware that they're doing. They're not doing it on purpose. But and I want you all to hear this, that doesn't make the pain and the abuse and the trauma any less. It doesn't take away our ability to still struggle with it just because they didn't plan it and didn't mean to do it doesn't mean that we don't still have a right to feel bad about it. Okay. I want you to hear that because so often we, we can think, well, they didn't mean to. So therefore I have to get over it as if the burden lies on us just because they 
unintentionally really harmed us emotionally. No, 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 no. You have every right to feel how you feel. You have every right to resent and be upset and be hurt and to be traumatized and to feel all the feelings that you need to feel and work on them in your own at your own pace. Doesn't mean you have to talk to your parent all the time. Just because we're related to someone doesn't mean we have to keep in touch with them. Sure, it'd be lovely if we could. And hopefully, you know, there can come a time if you need this to happen again. But if you feel like this is helpful, you could, you know, have your mom come into therapy and you could tell her about these things and how much it hurt you. And maybe that could be healing. Maybe she would be able to rise to the occasion and say, I'm so sorry. That's not what I intended. I love you. You're important, blah, blah, blah. And maybe then we could get what we needed from her. However, I find most of the time, it's best for us to work on giving that love and support to ourselves and surrounding ourselves with friends and the family we create, like our chosen family, um, to give us what we need because our, our blood relatives can't always do that. Sometimes they can, but sometimes they can't. And I give you full permission to do what you need to do to feel your best. And it's okay to not want to talk to her about things that are emotional for you because you know it's not going to be the support that you need and it might has potential to be harmful again. And so I just want to validate you. I want you to know that what happened to you was emotional neglect. You didn't choose that. What your mom offered just wasn't what you needed and that's why you're feeling this way. And so working in therapy and talking it through and trying to heal this wound, doing the inner child work and all that stuff will really help you come out the other side and feel feel better about it, okay? Okay, question number six. It says, hi, Katie, I hope you're well. I have a random question about therapists and their clients. Is it legal to treat a family member? This is a great question. You guys have such good questions. It says, for example, if your aunt or uncle or cousin of yours wanted to try therapy, would it be legal for you to take them on? Is it frowned upon? I'm thinking about smaller towns. When I was looking for a therapist, I recognized two online and the other was a friend of my sister's. So I didn't have much choice. But I was just curious if it's legal for a therapist to take on a client uh, who they are who they are related to or know outside of therapy and how this would work. I hope this makes sense. Thank you for these podcasts. I finally started therapy in September and you were definitely the final push that I needed. Love from Ireland. Yay. I'm so excited for you and so proud of you for taking that final step and doing it. I know it can be really scary, but it's super beneficial. Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. So legally, yes, I can see whoever. I can see all sorts of family members and cousins and people who are related, people who know each other. I can, you know, I can do that legally. However, ethically, it's a gray area. And here's why. Now, because I'm in a city, and there are tons of other therapists out here. What we, what we're talking about is kind of like dual relationships. And what that and I'll try to make this as clear as possible. So let me know if you want me to cover this again, you know, re-ask a question like it. So dual relationships are when are things that we try to avoid as much as we can as therapists. And that means that I have the therapeutic relationship as one relationship, and the other relationship is like we attend the same church or we, uh, our, our kids are go to the same school, let's say, or we a friend of a friend, right? So when, when our one friend or shared friend, uh, Laura has a party, I have to ask you if you're going, you ask if I'm going so that we both don't go or something like that, right? Those are dual relationships and we try to avoid those. So in a city, like I'm in Los Angeles, I would, 
I would just refer somebody out. I'd give them another referral until, you know, and let them know like, oh, I attend the same church as you. So I'm going to have to refer you out. I'm so sorry or whatever. Right. And if I can't, obviously I'm not going to tell them I'm seeing your uh, spouse, best friend, whatever. But if, if I can easily, I will refer out. Um, but if the relationships aren't that close, like I honestly wouldn't see ethically speaking, I wouldn't see anything wrong with seeing a patient and then seeing their cousin. I don't think that would affect my ability to be helpful for both because they're, they're not that closely related unless they like live in the same home or see each other like each and every day. That's when things kind of get convoluted, especially if they're having issues with each other that can be, that can compromise the therapeutic relationship because I can't be unbiased. I can't only see things from my patient's perspective because I'm hearing things from another patient's perspective. Does that make sense? So all in all, I want you to know that we avoid them as much as possible. However, when you said smaller towns, so I remember, and you guys, I'm 37. I went to school. I went to graduate school in 2007 to nine. So it's been a while, but as much as I can remember, and I should have dug up my old law and ethics book, but from what I remember, when it comes to small towns, there there's more leniency because like you said, there's only two online and the other one's a friend of your sister. So you really didn't have a choice. When it comes to smaller towns, these dual relationships happen with more frequency and are allowed more only because there's just no other options. And rather than having it be that only one person, one member of a family or one member of a church or something can go to see a therapist and then the others are like, nope, you can't, isn't right, right? Then there's no, there's no care that's offered and that that's worse than the potential dual relationship. And so when it comes to smaller towns, the way that I was taught to deal with it, again, if my memory serves me, I might be forgetting a few little bits of it, is that let's say again, I just keep going back to, let's say we go to the same yoga studio or the same church. I know I keep mentioning that, but it's just a, it's an easy thing to talk about, but let's say we do that and you come in to see me and I'm in a small town and there's only like five therapists there. And you know, so there's not many options and I I'll talk to you about that potential dual relationship. I'll talk to you about the fact that I attend the same church or yoga studio as you, and I'll ask you how you feel about it and how we want to go about this. Cause then I let you know, and I usually let all my patients know this because you never know if you'll run into them somewhere is that I will not come up to you and say hi, but you can always approach me if you want to. And the reason for that is because of confidentiality. If I come and tell you like, say, Hey, so good to see you. And you're with somebody and they're like, how do you know her? Who's that? Then you have to decide if you want to tell that person that, that who knows that you see a therapist and that I'm that therapist, or you have to come up with a lie. Then you have to lie to someone and that's just not okay. However, you can come up to me and just say hi, and then I'll say hi and blah, 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 because that's you saying it's okay for people around us to know that we know each other and you're making that step. And so you have to have these conversations. And when it comes to seeing people who are related in small towns, again, it's a little more gray and you're able to a little bit more. However, I would push back on the fact of seeing like a, a husband and a wife separately and not letting them know that because that does, I feel like that is, that's a line that I personally would draw ethically and seeing like, um, I don't know, a mother and a daughter or something. But other than that, I feel like you would be able to clinically, as long as you keep yourself in check, be able to hear both sides and not let one uh, person's therapy invade or share something you shouldn't share in the other person's therapy. And you'd have to be really acutely aware of it. But that's kind of like 
the the price we pay in small towns is is the fact that there aren't a lot of options and those potential dual relationships may exist and uh, knowing that they may be seeing someone that we know it happens. And so that's kind of something that we have to deal with and manage as we can, but it's not illegal. So I thought that was a really great question. Thank you for asking it. And hopefully that just helps give you a little bit more insight into how therapists work, well, who we can see and why and why not and all of that and how we manage those things. Um, yeah, because it's a small world. Even in the city, I've run into patients at restaurants and out at bars. I've seen them in my yoga studio. Um, and I'm in a big city. So you just never know. Okay, question number seven says, do you have any recommendations for someone who has multiple conditions that they need to work on? I have such a hard time even finding a therapist because I don't know what to bring up or what is more important. I struggle with anxiety, OCD, ADHD, self-harm, not uh, not self-diagnosed. And I think I have a history of trauma because of childhood emotional neglect. I couldn't possibly walk into someone's office and say all those things at once. You really could. Maybe they will get overwhelmed and just refer me out not likely. Do you have any comments or tips? Thank you for this podcast. I love it all the way from Sweden. We have people from all over. I love it. I love it. And there is a comment that I'll get to after this um, that was left below this question to kind of add on to it. So you can totally come into an office. And like I talked about personally, I, the ver I do verbal diarrhea where I will just share all the issues and all the things I'm thinking and all the struggles I'm having and what I think is going on, blah, 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 blah. So you can totally do that. You can come into the session and just say, I think I'm struggling with yada, 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 yada. I don't really know. Um, also, I think I might have trauma. I just need help and I don't really know where to start and I'm feeling overwhelmed. Blah. You could totally say that because what happens then is as a therapist, I jot those things down. First, I usually say like, just so you know, I'm taking notes. You can always ask to see them if you want, but it's just so I don't forget things and it help me put, it'll help me put together a treatment plan for you. Okay. So then... I, I go back through the things. Okay, you said you're struggling with anxiety, OCD, ADHD, self-harm, and potentially trauma. Is there anything else that's going on? You know, blah, blah, blah. So you give me that. And then I would try to um, figure out when these things started, what the symptoms that you're experiencing are. I would maybe go through some diagnostic criteria for a few of these just to see if you feel it fits. And we would just start figuring it out together, little by little. So that then we can come to terms with what we think our goal is in therapy and what the cause may be of some of these. Because like the self-harm and the trauma, I'd be curious if those are linked. Potentially also the anxiety and OCD could be linked, you know, and ADHD. I would want to know which, like what started, what happened first and where did these uh, different issues come from so that we can try to figure out the root and work to heal that root and give you some tools and techniques along the way to manage the urges. So you can totally do that. They may refer you out if, like for instance, I don't specialize in ADHD. So if you came into my office and told me all these things, I would say to you, I just want to let you know that I am fully equipped to help you with you know, your anxiety and your self-injury and trauma. However, when it comes to OCD and ADHD, those are not things that I personally specialize in. And if those tend to be the more prevalent symptoms that you experience or the thing that you need to work on the most, I may have to refer you out for some other therapy or have you see someone else altogether because you know, I'm, I have limitations of what I can offer. I would let you know right away. So that might be the only reason if they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to treat this. Would you like a referral to someone who does know how? 
that that might be what would happen. But they're not going to be like, oh, you're too much. Trust me, we all have a bunch of things we think we're dealing with. And it's the therapist's job to hold. That's why we call it a holding environment. I had that video a while ago about like, what's your therapist really saying? But a holding environment means I can contain all that you have that you need to get out. So like if you just want to verbal diarrhea and vent everything and throw it out there, I can hold it for you. I can hold the space. I can hold what's happening and I can help you like I can look lessen your load so that you don't feel so overwhelmed and start making sense of it and organizing it into a way into a treatment plan in a way that we can treat it if that makes sense okay so that's really it i would encourage you to make an appointment and say all those things and that's completely fine and the question following there's a comment on this question that says what if you have several issues but little to no diagnosis and don't want to sound like you're self diagnosing on the first session don't worry. Almost everybody has Google these days and has an idea of what they're experiencing. And all you have to say is, these are the issues I think I'm struggling with. And I don't want to self-diagnose, but I just wanted to put words and a name to what I think I'm feeling. And I would love to get your insight into whether or not you think those diagnoses are correct. That's all. You said to tell them, these are things that I think hasn't been, uh, you know, I haven't been able to, you know, solidify that and get an actual diagnosis from, from a professional. And that's why I'm here to get some help and to figure out what's going on. And so that's fine. I know, I, I know that some therapists, and unfortunately, I've heard from a lot of you recently that you have like therapists with egos about this stuff, but a good therapist won't. I don't care if I'm wrong about your diagnosis. I've done the best job I can. But again, you are the expert in your own experience. And so if you disagree, I welcome that. Let's go through the diagnostic criteria. Where do you think we went wrong? What else do you think is going on? Or what, what do you think is not happening and you don't think that fits? Like, let's talk about it. I feel like any therapist worth their salt is going to be open to, to talking to you and hearing you out about your diagnosis. I don't know everything and I should be, you know, it's us working together. It shouldn't be me helping you. It's us working together to make, to help you feel better. Right. And so don't worry about it. Just let them know, hey, this hasn't been diagnosed by any professional, but that's why I'm here. These are the things I think I'm struggling with. Well, let's let's sort it out. And they should work with you and it should be all good. But yeah, overall, just don't be afraid to just tell your therapist all the things you're thinking. Truthfully, the more we know as therapists, the better able we'll be to offer the help that you need. Because if we don't know that you struggle with self-harm until like six months in, then that means we can't offer any assistance with that until six months in. There's no impulse logs we can talk about or find out the reason why. There's none of that. And so the sooner we tell them, the sooner they can help us with it. And so it's okay to just bleh, get it all out there. Don't worry. I do it too. Okay. Question number eight it says, hi, Katie. Is it possible to have a favorite person as it is described in relation to borderline personality disorder or BPD? without having BPD. Since adolescence, I've suffered from a string of unbearably intense attachments to one person at a time. That's this favorite person thing, you guys. It's like you have this person you're super, super attached to. Teacher, therapist, and friend. No matter how much attention or affection I win from this person, I always crave more, and I'll do anything to get closer. When I started reading about the favorite person for those with BPD, it sounded like my experience. 
However, I'm unlikely to have BPD since I'm not blaming myself for others. I'm not impulsive and I don't self-harm. Is having a favorite person symptomatic of other diagnoses? How can I break free from putting all my eggs in one basket and start paying attention to the other wonderful people in my life? Thank you. Yes, you can have a favorite person without having BPD. For many of you who maybe haven't heard me say this in the past, um, let me get a drink of water here. Some of us can have symptoms of anxiety, BPD, uh, reactive attachment disorder. We can have all sorts of diagnoses or not diagnoses. We can have all sorts of different symptoms, but not meet the criteria for a full diagnosis or like we call it having some tendencies. Like you might have some BPD tendencies. However, you don't, you know, don't have all these other impulsive self-harm. You don't blame others and it doesn't meet the criteria. We can just have like some symptoms, right? I would argue that yours has more to do with attachment than it really does with BPD. And so those would be, that'd be something that I would want you to explore and maybe seeing an attachment-based therapist or even a DBT therapist. Because even though it's not BPD fully, there's a huge part of attachment and abandonment that goes along with BPD, and that's what you struggle with the most. And so a lot of those mindfulness, um, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, uh, distress tolerance, a lot of the skills in DBT will still benefit you. And so I think that that could really help. Um, and so, yes, it is completely possible to have a favorite person but not have BPD. And I think that goes along with a lot of things. Like I can have some symptoms of an eating disorder or depression and not meet the full criteria. And that's why the DSM while and the ICD-10, while they're great and helpful, they're not the end-all be-all because not every one of us is going to fit into that box. And I find that really frustrating. And I think that's really limiting then because if we can't get that diagnosis, if we don't meet all that criteria, can't get that diagnosis. And sometimes we can't get treatment or we can't get the good referral to the specialist we need to see. And that really pisses me off. And so I get kind of annoyed with, um, you know, people who worry so much about diagnoses because we're all different. And, you know, we can have some tendencies for BPD without having it, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't still benefit from DBT, which is, if you guys don't know, dialectical behavior therapy is the number one treatment for BPD. And I think it's the only treatment specifically for it, but I could be wrong. Um, but anyways, you know, I that's what frustrates me is when it limits our ability to get the help that we need and the coverage that we need. I just don't like the DSM or the ICD-10. But we can have we can have symptoms. We don't all fit in those boxes, and that's okay. But I think yours, just as an FYI, I think it has more to do with attachment, and I think healing that wound, finding, doing some of that inner child work, having some conversations with that inner child of you who maybe is, you know, feeling abandoned or struggling with attachment to different people, like doing that healing work in therapy, I think could really really help you. And it would help you be able to, as you said, start paying attention to the other wonderful people in your life. And it can help you not put all your eggs in one basket and just, yeah, help you feel better. I hope that's helpful and great question. Okay. Question number nine says, hi, Katie, since it's encouraged for people in mental health industries to see their own psychologist from time to time, do you find it hard to switch positions and be the patient on the couch? Is your brain always one step ahead predicting what your psychologist will say? No. Is it hard to let your defenses down since you're wired to seek patterns in behavior? No, but I recognize them more early or like more quickly. I mean, I imagine if you spoke about the stressors of your job, being a psychologist uh, would secret 
secretly relate. Surely in some cases, countertransference would happen. Not really. Okay, so I'm just going to speak personally because I don't know how other clinicians have done. I've only personally seen one other therapist as their therapist. Okay. So I've had one other person and unfortunately she was struggling financially. And then we only saw each other a few times and she was never able to come back, even though I was trying to work on a sliding scale. So that was a little complicated. So I haven't had, I'm just saying that because I haven't had as a therapist, I haven't seen a lot of other therapists. Okay. But I have been on the couch in my own therapy as the patient for years. And it, it it's not the thing that's the hardest for me. It's not that it's hard to switch positions, but the thing that's the hardest for me is to allow them to be the expert. And what I mean by that is because I have my experience and I also have the knowledge, sometimes I try to just cut to the chase where I'm like, I know this sounds like me being passive aggressive, but I thought about it and here's what's going on. And so I too often and my therapist calls me out on this, which has been helpful. But I'm also looking because we're moving and stuff. I'm gonna have to find a new therapist. And I'm wanting one that's even more tough love because my therapist calls me out, but she's also a little soft woo woo which helped me for some time. But, um, you know, I need a little more now. But anyways, when I try to cut to the chase, she'll be like, why are you rushing? Like, let's, let's talk this through. I want to go back to, and she'll keep saying, I want to go back to whatever the thing was that I was trying to like, but no, 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 I, that's not really important as, as you think it is. Cause listen to this and I'll put, you know, and so I have a tough time giving the time needed in therapy to work things through and discover new things. And so that has been something that I think I'm getting better at. But when I was fresh out of school, I definitely had a really tough time with. So I don't find it hard so much to switch positions, but I find it hard to let go of the knowledge that I have because the thing that that I want, if any of you are mental health professionals and you're in therapy, the thing I think we all need to hear is that when we are patients in our own therapy, we don't have to be the expert. We don't know things. That's why we're there. We can't see. We have our own blind spots due to our own patterns of behavior and the way that we were brought up and situations and shitty relationships and our own ish, right? That's why we're there. We've got our own ish. So we need to trust the other professional to help us figure it out because we can't do it on our own. And that doesn't mean that we're not good therapists. I actually think it makes us a better therapist to be open to seeing someone allowing another perspective and hopefully some more helpful insight. So anyways, I don't have a tough time with my defenses, mainly because I'm like that verbal diarrhea type of person. I kind of like overshare and over uh, just everything. I don't, because therapy, I don't know why. I've never had a tough time in therapy when, with defense mechanisms, but that might just be specific to me and the way that I process things, you know, because everybody's different. But I do know my own patterns of behavior and I'll call that out and she'll be like, are you doing the therapy or am I doing therapy, you know? Um, and, and even when I talk about the stressors of my job and the stressors of like holding space, and especially with COVID, we've only had a few sessions. Um, cause like I said, I kind of want to get a different therapist, but it's been tough in the time of COVID. Um, she said like, yeah, I, I feel that too. Like she doesn't secretly relate. She lets me know she relates, but she doesn't share anything, you know, specific obviously, but, but yeah, it's, it is tricky. I don't find I don't know if I have transference and countertransference with my therapist. I haven't experienced it yet. Um, but I also am very into boundaries and stuff like that. And 
but I just, I would assume in some cases that could happen. But yeah, it's it has its own issues, but I don't think that the issues of being a therapist in therapy are any greater than just being a, a regular everyday person in therapy. It's hard work. It's difficult to get out of our own way. And my me getting in my own way just looks a little different from someone else's getting like maybe more defense mechanisms than other people, you know? But I think just going back working it, trying our hardest to share and get the different perspective and help that we seek, you know, is really, it's just where it's at. We just got to do our best. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, Hey Katie, I am a woman who has survived CSA, which stands for childhood sexual abuse. I have a question. Is it normal to be aroused or turned on by the idea of being sexually assaulted? This is never something I would want in real life, but I have daydreamed of scenarios of sexual assault often. I'm currently in therapy, but have never told anyone about this because I feel so ashamed. Could my fetish be related to the abuse that I suffered? Sorry if this question is too graphic. No, it's not too graphic at all. And I, first of all, loved that there were lots of comments on this, this question, applauding this person for sharing. And I'm really proud and I just want to, you know, also give that to you that I'm really glad that you're saying this out loud that you're talking about it. And we've talked about it before. So you're not alone. And there were other comments saying me too. And here's why. And a lot of the answers were similar to what I would say. So here we go. When we have been abused sexually or in, in any way, honestly, but se- we're just going to talk sexually, like specific to sexual abuse right now. So when we have survived childhood sexual abuse, when we get older and we start engaging in sexual relationships of our own volition, meaning that like we are trying to have sex for the first time as a maybe a teenager or young adult um, with someone that it's not an abuse form, we can struggle to enjoy it, to know what a healthy relationship sexually looks like. And we can fetishize our old abusive behavior because that's all we know, right? I've heard from a lot of my viewers and patients over the years that like, that's what arouses me because that was like my first sexual experience. That's what I equate to sexuality. And that's kind of what I've absorbed as a turn on. Okay. So there's that component and that's a huge thing that happens. And that's very common. Another one that's common and one that was in the comments of this is we can do, uh, we can want to act out different abusive scenes, like whether it's rape or, you know, just, uh, other forms of sexual abuse, we can want to do those same scenarios and act them out with someone else as a way and as a means of taking control back. Because when we're sexually abused as a child, we most often we go into freeze. We don't know how to fight back. We don't really, maybe we can't because we're too small, too, too weak. And we freeze and we feel like we had no control. We feel hopeless and helpless. And that is what leads us to having these, the trauma response, PTSD, right? So as a way for our brain to kind of like make sense and take the control back and be like, no, I'm in control now, we can engage in the same types of behaviors and say, I'm choosing to do it. And this is something I want to do. And so we can want to play out the same scenarios, everything from having um, different patients and viewers have told me like uh, wanting to do uh, bondage, getting into S&M, of spanking, uh, even like rape scenarios and things like that. We can want to do role play. It's all because we're trying to not only make sense of what happened to us, but take the control back. And so I think that there's a huge component in there. And until we heal from what happened to us and get, become more curious and more 
knowledgeable and understanding of our sexuality and what it means to us, we can, you know, once we do that healing and do that work, then it's potentially these fetishes and these, if we can feel like it's us acting out, that might go away. However, it could be part of our sexuality because of where we came from. And there's nothing wrong with having fetishes. There's nothing wrong. Um, Like I've heard from a lot of you that you are hypersexualized, like you went into whether it was your prostitution or you know, just uh, having sex with a bunch of people willy-nilly, like very casual sex situations. And that was part of you taking the power back. But a lot of you enjoy it. And as long as it's consensual and it's not hurting anyone, I'm not here to judge. But I just want you all to know that however you are trying to process it, it's okay. And it's very normal. The The need to make sense and the need to control and take you take the control back is very, it makes so much sense to me and it's very normal and it's very common. And so I just want you to know that doing this doesn't make you weird. There's nothing wrong with you. Really, you're just trying to make sense of it and really seeking the healing. And so I would encourage you to find a therapist who either specializes in trauma or some even specialize in childhood sexual abuse and abuse as a whole. Like I have a friend of mine who specializes in like domestic violence cases and that comes along with like physical sexual abuse stuff for the children. So finding someone like that or finding a group even would be really helpful and healing. Um, and just know that however however you're aroused once you've done the trauma work is fine. Everybody has sexual fetishes and different sexual preferences and there's no judgment here. You get to be you and do whatever um, feels good to you. I just want to make sure it's coming out of a healthy place so that you know that, you know, sex can look and feel however you want it to. And it doesn't have to always come from this past experience. Yeah. So I hope that that helped. I hope that that kind of helps you explain it or not explain it, but helps, helps validate how you're feeling, helps you make sense of why this is happening. Because again, it's super, super uh, common and a great resource. I just want to throw this out here before I end. A great resource is the Courage to Heal workbook. Now it is for those of you out there listening, it is very female driven. And it is childhood sexual abuse specific. I wish it had been broader. I wish there were more of these types of books for men that I think are as great as this, but I still think it could help um, anyone. I think it is really wonderful and it's a really healing workbook. And it's something I would encourage you to work on with your therapist because it's it's tough stuff and we want to get that support and we want to get that time to process and we don't want to overdo it and re-traumatize ourselves. And so I would uh, find that book. I th- they, I know that they've done a bunch of different, uh, what do you call it, like revisions or versions of the book. I don't think it matters. I get the cheapest one. I think even the old original is great. That's actually the one I use in my practice the most con- like most often, although I have a couple of the newer ones just because patients have taken them and home. And so I want to have more than one. Um, so don't feel like you have to get the brand new one. I know they're just doing that to you know make more money, which is great because they're wonderful they created an amazing, useful tool. And there's also probably some updates, but don't worry, get on Amazon, look for uh, the Courage to Heal workbook. You can also find it easily by going to my Amazon shop, which is just amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's there too. I think it's in the description too, if you want to click through it, make it easier for you. Um, Yeah, but you can heal. Nothing's wrong with you. You're just trying to process what happened and make sense of it and take that control back. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's all just part of our our healing process. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Again, I love your guys' questions. They're always wonderful. They always are just so 
just, just great. They're, they're really things that I would never have thought to talk about. And I love that you're asking the questions and we can hopefully all learn more together because as I used to say, and maybe I should say this, keep saying this again is with my expertise and your experience, we work together towards a healthy mind and a healthy body. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions.